This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway, bunnyslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. Can't see it, but it's it's a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so uh, this month we're going to be doing Jack London stories. So check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes. So check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast. You'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about uh, underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, listen for the episode of, uh, I think it's D U G S. Uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds. If you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself, Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also, probably we're going to have some of these shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us. But, you know, I love producing podcasts. So if you've got a podcast idea, track me down and we'll do something. Especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um... I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But, yeah, no, um, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So, yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio and keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go. Jack London, right now. Recording by Matt Saw. The Scarlet Livery With the destruction of the Granger States, the Grangers in Congress disappeared. They were being tried for high treason, and their places were taken by the creatures of the Iron Heel. The Socialists were in a pitiful minority, and they knew that their end was near. Congress and the Senate were empty pretenses, farces. Public questions were gravely debated and passed upon according to the old forms, while in reality... All that was done was to give the stamp of constitutional procedure to the mandates of the oligarchy. Ernest was in the thick of the fight when the end came. It was in the debate on the bill to assist the unemployed. The hard times of the preceding year had thrust great masses of the proletariat beneath the starvation line, and the continued and wide-reaching disorder had but sunk them deeper. Millions of people were starving, while the oligarchs and their supporters were surfeiting on the surplus 
We called these wretched people the people of the abyss, and it was to alleviate their awful suffering that the socialists had introduced the unemployed bill. But this was not to the fancy of the Iron Heel. In its own way, it was preparing to set these millions to work, but the way was not our way. Wherefore, it had issued its orders that our bill should be voted down. Ernest and his fellows knew that the effort was futile, but they were tired of the suspense. They wanted something to happen. They were accomplishing nothing, and the best they hoped for was the putting of an end to the legislative farce in which they were unwilling players. They knew not what end would come, but they never anticipated a more disastrous end than the one that did come. Note. The Surplus. The same conditions obtained in the 19th century A.D. under British rule in India. The natives died of starvation by the million, while their rulers robbed them of the fruits of their toil and expended it on magnificent pageants and mumbo-jumbo fooleries. Perforce, in this enlightened age, we have much to blush for in the acts of our ancestors. Our only consolation is philosophic. We must accept the capitalistic stage in social evolution as about on a par with the earlier monkey stage. The human had to pass through those stages in its rise from the mire and slime of low organic life. It was inevitable that much of the mire and slime should cling and be not easily shaken off. Note, the people of the abyss. This phrase was struck out by the genius of H.G. Wells in the late 19th century A.D. Wells was a sociological seer, sane and normal, as well as warm human. Many fragments of his work have come down to us, while two of his greatest achievements, Anticipations and Mankind in the Making, have come down intact, before the oligarchs and before Everhard. Wells speculated upon the building of the wonder cities, though in his writings they are referred to as pleasure cities. I sat in the gallery that day. We all knew that something terrible was imminent. It was in the air, and its presence was made visible by the armed soldiers drawn up in lines in the corridors, and by the officers grouped in the entrances to the house itself. The oligarchy was about to strike. Ernest was speaking. He was describing the sufferings of the unemployed, as if with the wild idea of in some way touching their hearts and consciences. But the Republican and Democratic members sneered and jeered at him, and there was uproar and confusion. Ernest abruptly changed front. I know nothing that I may say can influence you, he said. You have no souls to be influenced. You are spineless, flaccid things. You pompously call yourselves Republicans and Democrats. There is no Republican Party. There's no Democratic Party. There are no Republicans nor Democrats in this house. You are lick-spittlers and panderers, the creatures of the plutocracy. You talk verbosely in antiquated terminology of your love of liberty. And all the while, you wear the scarlet livery of the Iron Heel. Here the shouting and the cries of order, order, drowned his voice, and he stood disdainfully till the din had somewhat subsided. He waved his hand to include all of them, turned to his own comrades and said, Listen to the bellowing of the well-fed beasts. Pandemonium broke out again. The speaker rapped for order and glanced expectantly at the officers in the doorways. There were cries of sedition, and a great, rotund New York member began shouting, Anarchist! at Ernest. And Ernest was not pleasant to look at. Every fighting fibre of him was quivering, and his face was the face of a fighting animal. With all, he was cool and collected. Remember, he said, in a voice that made itself heard above the din, that as you show mercy now to the proletariat, 
Someday will that same proletariat show mercy to you. The cries of sedition and anarchist redoubled. I know that you will not vote for this bill, Ernest went on. You have received the command from your masters to vote against it. And yet you call me anarchist. You, who have destroyed the government of the people, and who shamelessly flaunt your scarlet shame in public places, call me anarchist. I do not believe in hellfire and brimstone, but in moments like this I regret my unbelief. Nay, in moments like this I almost do believe. Surely there must be a hell, for in no less place could it be possible for you to receive punishment adequate to your crimes. So long as you exist, there is a vital need for hellfire in the cosmos. There was movement in the doorways. Ernest, the speaker, all the members turned to see. Why do you not call your soldiers in, Mr. Speaker, and bid them do your work? Ernest demanded. They should carry out your plan with expedition. There are other plans afoot, was the retort. That is why the soldiers are present. Our plans, I suppose, Ernest sneered. Assassination, or something kindred. But at the word assassination, the uproar broke out again. Ernest could not make himself heard, but he remained on his feet waiting for a lull. And then it happened. From my place in the gallery, I saw nothing except the flash of the explosion. The roar of it filled my ears, and I saw Ernest reeling and falling in a swirl of smoke, and the soldiers rushing up all the aisles. His comrades were on their feet, wild with anger, capable of any violence. But Ernest steadied himself for a moment, and waved his arms for silence. "'It is a plot!' His voice rang out in warning to his comrades. Do nothing, or you will be destroyed. Then he slowly sank down, and the soldiers reached him. The next moment soldiers were clearing the galleries, and I saw no more. Though he was my husband, I was not permitted to get to him. When I announced who I was, I was promptly placed under arrest. And at the same time were arrested all socialist congressmen in Washington, including the unfortunate Simpson who lay ill with typhoid fever in his hotel. The trial was prompt and brief. The men were foredoomed. The wonder was that Ernest was not executed. This was a blunder on the part of the oligarchy, and a costly one. But the oligarchy was too confident in those days. It was drunk with success, and little did it dream that that small handful of heroes had within them the power to rock it to its foundations. Tomorrow, when the great revolt breaks out and all the world resounds with the tramp, tramp of the millions, the oligarchy will realize, and too late, how mightily that band of heroes has grown. Note, Avis Everhard took for granted that her narrative would be read in her own day, and so omits to mention the outcome of the trial for high treason. Many other similar disconcerting omissions will be noticed in the manuscript. Fifty-two socialist congressmen were tried, and all were found guilty. Strange to relate, not one received the death sentence. Everhard and eleven others, among whom were Theodore Donaldson and Matthew Kent, received life imprisonment. The remaining forty received sentences varying from thirty to forty-five years, while Arthur Simpson, referred to in the manuscript as being ill of typhoid fever at the time of the explosion, received only fifteen years. It is the tradition that he died of starvation in solitary confinement, and this harsh treatment is explained as having been caused by his uncompromising stubbornness and his fiery and tactless hatred for all men that served the despotism. He died in Cabanas in Cuba, where three of his comrades were also confined. 
Fifty-two socialist congressmen were confined in military fortresses scattered all over the United States. Thus Du Bois and Woods were held in Puerto Rico, while Everhard and Merriweather were placed in Alcatraz, an island in San Francisco Bay that had already seen long service as a military prison. As a revolutionist, myself, as one on the inside who knew the hopes and fears and secret plans of the revolutionists, I am fitted to answer, as very few are, the charge that they were guilty of exploding the bomb in Congress. And I can say flatly, without qualification or doubt of any sort, that the socialists, in Congress and out, had no hand in the affair. Who threw the bomb, we do not know, but the one thing we are absolutely sure of is that we did not throw it. On the other hand, there is evidence to show that the Iron Heel was responsible for the act. Of course, we cannot prove this. Our conclusion is merely presumptive, but here are such facts as we do know. It had been reported to the Speaker of the House, by secret service agents of the government, that the socialist congressmen were about to resort to terroristic tactics, and that they had decided upon the day when their tactics would go into effect. This day was the very day of the explosion. Wherefore, the capital had been packed with troops in anticipation. Since we knew nothing about the bomb, and since a bomb actually was exploded, and since the authorities had prepared in advance for the explosion, it is only fair to conclude that the Iron Heel did know. Furthermore, we charge that the Iron Heel was guilty of the outrage, and that the Iron Heel planned and perpetrated the outrage for the purpose of foisting the guilt on our shoulders and so bringing about our destruction. From the speaker, the warning leaked out to all the creatures in the house that wore the scarlet livery. They knew, while Ernest was speaking, that some violent act was to be committed. And to do them justice, they honestly believed that the act was to be committed by the socialists. At the trial, and still with honest belief, several testified to having seen Ernest prepare to throw the bomb, and that it exploded prematurely. Of course, they saw nothing of the sort. In the fevered imagination of fear, they thought they saw. That was all. As Ernest said at the trial, Does it stand to reason, if I were going to throw a bomb, that I should elect to throw a feeble little squib like the one that was thrown? There wasn't enough powder in it. It made a lot of smoke, but hurt no one except me. It exploded right at my feet, and yet it did not kill me. Believe me, when I get to throwing bombs, I'll do damage. There'll be more than smoke in my petards. In return, it was argued by the prosecution that the weakness of the bomb was a blunder on the part of the socialists, just as its premature explosion, caused by Ernest's losing his nerve and dropping it, was a blunder. And to clinch the argument, there were the several congressmen who testified to having seen Ernest fumble and drop the bomb. As for ourselves, not one of us knew how the bomb was thrown. Ernest told me that the fraction of an instant before it exploded, he both heard and saw it strike at his feet. He testified to this at the trial, but no one believed him. Besides, the whole thing, in popular slang, was cooked up. The Iron Heel had made up its mind to destroy us, and there was no withstanding it. There is a saying that truth will out. I have come to doubt that saying. Nineteen years have elapsed, and despite our untiring efforts, we have failed to find the man who really did throw the bomb. Undoubtedly, he was some emissary of the Iron Heel, but he has escaped detection. We have never got the slightest clue to his identity. And now, at this late date, nothing remains but for the affair to take its place among the mysteries of history. Note. Avis Everhard would have had to live for many generations ere she could have seen the clearing up of this particular mystery. 
A little less than a hundred years ago, and a little more than six hundred years after the death, the confession of Pervase was discovered in the secret archives of the Vatican. It is perhaps well to tell a little something about this obscure document, which, in the main, is of interest to the historian only. Pervase was an American, of French descent, who in 1913 A.D. was lying in the Tombs Prison in New York City, awaiting trial for murder. From his confession we learn that he was not a criminal. He was warm-blooded, passionate, emotional. In an insane fit of jealousy, he killed his wife, a very common act in those times. Pervase was mastered by the fear of death, all of which is recounted at length in his confession. To escape death, he would have done anything, and the police agents prepared him by assuring him that he could not possibly escape conviction of murder in the first degree when his trial came off. In those days, murder in the first degree was a capital offense. Guilty man or woman was placed in a specially constructed death chair, and under the supervision of competent physicians, was destroyed by a current of electricity. This was called electrocution, and it was very popular during that period. Anesthesia as a mode of compulsory death was not introduced until later. This man, good at heart but with a ferocious animalism close at the surface of his being, lying in jail and expectant of nothing less than death, was prevailed upon by the agents of the Iron Hill to throw the bomb in the House of Representatives. In his confession, he states explicitly that he was informed that the bomb was to be a feeble thing and that no lives would be lost. This is directly in line with the fact that the bomb was lightly charged and that its explosion at Everhard's feet was not deadly. Pervase was smuggled into one of the galleries ostensibly closed for repairs. He was to select the moment for the throwing of the bomb, and he naively confesses that in his interest in Everhard's tirade and the general commotion raised thereby, he nearly forgot his mission. Not only was he released from prison in reward for his deed, but he was granted an income for life. This he did not long enjoy. In 1914 AD, in September, he was stricken with rheumatism of the heart and lived for three days. It was then that he sent for the Catholic priest, Father Peter Durban, and to him made confession. So important did it seem to the priest that he had the confession taken down in writing and sworn to. What happened after this we can only surmise. The document was certainly important enough to find its way to Rome. Powerful influences must have been brought to bear, hence its suppression. For centuries no hint of its existence reached the world. It was not until in the last century that Lorbia, the brilliant Italian scholar, stumbled upon it quite by chance during his researches in the Vatican. There is today no doubt whatever that the Iron Heel was responsible for the bomb that exploded in the House of Representatives in 1913 A.D. Even though the Pervase Confession had never come to light, no reasonable doubt could obtain, for the act in question that sent 52 congressmen to prison was on a par with countless other acts committed by the oligarchs, and before them, by the capitalists. There is the classic instance of the ferocious and wanton judicial murder of the innocent and so-called Haymarket anarchists in Chicago in the penultimate decade of the 19th century A.D. In a category by itself is the deliberate burning and destruction of capitalist property by the capitalists themselves. For such destruction of property, innocent men were frequently punished, railroaded in the parlance of the times. In the labor troubles of the first decade of the 20th century A.D., between the capitalists and the Western Federation of Miners, similar but more bloody tactics were employed. The railroad station at Independence was blown up by the agents of the capitalists. Thirteen men were killed, and many more were wounded. And then the capitalists, controlling the legislative and judicial machinery of the state of Colorado, charged the miners with the crime and came very near to convicting them. Remains, one of the tools in this affair, like Pervase, was lying in jail in another state, Kansas, awaiting trial, when he was approached by the agents of the capitalists. But unlike Pervase, the confession of Remains was made public in his own time. Then, during this same period, there was the case of Moyer and Haywood, two strong, fearless leaders of labor. One was president, and the other was secretary of the Western Federation of Miners. The ex-governor of Idaho had been mysteriously murdered. The crime, at the time, was openly charged to the mine owners by the socialists and miners. Nevertheless, in violation of the national and state constitutions, and by means of conspiracy on the parts of the governors of Idaho and Colorado, Moyer and Haywood were kidnapped, thrown into jail, and charged with the murder. 
It was this instance that provoked from Eugene V. Debs, national leader of the American Socialists at the time, the following words. The labor leaders that cannot be bribed nor bullied must be ambushed and murdered. The only crime of Moyer and Hayward is that they have been unswervingly true to the working class. The capitalists have stolen our country, debauched our politics, defiled our judiciary, and ridden over us roughshod. And now they propose to murder those who will not abjectly surrender to their brutal dominion. The governors of Colorado and Idaho are but executing the mandates of their masters, the plutocracy. The issue is the workers versus the plutocracy. If they strike the first violent blow, we will strike the last. End of chapter 17 Recording by Matt Saw, Montreal, mattsaw.org Myself, during this period, there is not much to say. For six months I was kept in prison, though charged with no crime. I was a suspect, a word of fear that all revolutionists were soon to come to know. But our own nascent secret service was beginning to work. By the end of my second month in prison, one of the jailers made himself known as a revolutionist in touch with the organization. Several weeks later, Joseph Parkhurst, the prison doctor who had just been appointed, proved himself to be a member of one of the fighting groups. Thus, throughout the organization of the oligarchy, our own organization, web-like and spidery, was insinuating itself. And so I was kept in touch with all that was happening in the world without. And furthermore, every one of our imprisoned leaders was in contact with brave comrades who masqueraded in the livery of the Iron Heel. Though Ernest lay in prison 3,000 miles away on the Pacific coast, I was in unbroken communication with him, and our letters passed regularly back and forth. The leaders, in prison and out, were able to discuss and direct the campaign. It would have been possible within a few months to have effected the escape of some of them, but since imprisonment proved no bar to our activities, it was decided to avoid anything premature. Fifty-two congressmen were in prison, and fully three hundred more of our leaders. It was planned that they should be delivered simultaneously. If part of them escaped, the vigilance of the oligarchs might be aroused so as to prevent the escape of the remainder. On the other hand, it was held that a simultaneous jail delivery all over the land would have immense psychological influence on the proletariat. It would show our strength and give confidence. So it was arranged, when I was released at the end of six months, that I was to disappear and prepare a secure hiding place for Ernest. To disappear was in itself no easy thing. No sooner did I get my freedom than my footsteps began to be dogged by the spies of the Iron Heel. It was necessary that they should be thrown off the track and that I should win to California. It is laughable the way this was accomplished. Already the passport system, modelled on the Russian, was developing. I dared not cross the continent in my own character. It was necessary that I should be completely lost if ever I was to see Ernest again, for by trailing me after he escaped, he would be caught once more. Again, I could not disguise myself as a proletarian and travel. There remained the disguise of a member of the oligarchy. While the arch-oligarchs were no more than a handful, there were myriads of lesser ones of the type, say, of Mr. Wixon, men worth a few millions who were adherents of the arch-oligarchs. The wives and daughters of these lesser oligarchs were legion, and it was decided that I should assume the disguise of such a one. A few years later this would have been impossible, because the passport system was to become so perfect that no man, woman, nor child in all the land was unregistered and unaccounted for in his or her movements. When the time was ripe, the spies were thrown off my track. An hour later, Avis Everhard was no more. At that time, one Felice van Verdehen, accompanied by two maids and a lapdog, with another maid for the lapdog, entered a drawing room on a pullman and a few minutes later was speeding west. Note. This ridiculous picture well illustrates the heartless conduct of the masters. 
While people starved, lapdogs were waited upon by maids. This was a serious masquerade on the part of Avis Everhard. Life and death and the cause were in the issue. Therefore, the picture must be accepted as a true picture. It affords a striking commentary of the times. Note. Pullman. The designation of the more luxurious railway cars of the period, and so named from the inventor. The three maids who accompanied me were revolutionists. Two were members of the fighting groups, and the third, Grace Holbrook, entered a group the following year, and six months later was executed by the Iron Heel. She it was who waited upon the dog. Of the other two, Bertha Stoll disappeared twelve years later, while Anne Royalston still lives and plays an increasingly important part in the revolution. Note. Despite continual and almost inconceivable hazards, Anna Royalston lived to the royal age of 91. As the Pococks defied the executioners of the fighting groups, so she defied the executioners of the Iron Heel. She bore a charmed life and prospered amid dangers and alarms. She herself was an executioner for the fighting groups, and, known as the Red Virgin, she became one of the inspired figures of the revolution. When she was an old woman of 69, she shot bloody Hawcliffe down in the midst of his armed escort and got away unscathed. In the end, she died peaceably of old age in a secret refuge of the revolutionists in the Ozark Mountains. Without adventure, we crossed the United States to California. When the train stopped at 16th Street Station in Oakland, we alighted, and there, Felice Van Verdehen, with her two maids, her lapdog, and her lapdog's maid, disappeared forever. The maids, guided by trusty comrades, were led away. Other comrades took charge of me. Within half an hour after leaving the train, I was on board a small fishing boat and out on the waters of San Francisco Bay. The winds baffled, and we drifted aimlessly the greater part of the night. But I saw the lights of Alcatraz where Ernest lay, and found comfort in the thought of nearness to him. By dawn, what with the rowing of the fishermen, we made the Marin Islands. Here we lay in hiding all day, and on the following night, swept on by a flood tide and a fresh wind, we crossed San Pablo Bay in two hours, and ran up Petaluma Creek. Here horses were ready, and another comrade, and without delay we were away through the starlight. To the north I could see the loom of Sonoma Mountain, toward which we rode. We left the old town of Sonoma to the right, and rode up a canyon that lay between outlying buttresses of the mountain. The wagon road became a wood road, the wood road became a cowpath, and the cowpath dwindled away and ceased among the upland pastures. Straight over Sonoma Mountain we rode. It was the safest route. There was no one to mark our passing. Dawn caught us on the northern brow, and in the grey light we dropped down through the chaparral into redwood canyons, deep and warm with the breath of passing summer. It was old country to me that I knew and loved, and soon I became the guide. The hiding place was mine. I had selected it. We let down the bars and crossed an upland meadow. Next we went over a low, oak-covered ridge and descended into a smaller meadow. Again we climbed a ridge, this time riding under red-limbed madronas and manzanitas of deeper red. The first rays of the sun streamed upon our backs as we climbed. A flight of quail thrummed off through the thickets. A big jackrabbit crossed our path, leaping swiftly and silently like a deer. And then a deer, a many-pronged buck, the sun flashing red gold from neck and shoulders, cleared the crest of the ridge before us and was gone. We followed in his wake a space, then dropped down a zigzag trail that he disdained into a group of noble redwoods that stood about a pool of water murky with minerals from the mountainside. I knew every inch of the way. Once, a writer friend of mine had owned the ranch, but he, too, had become a revolutionist, though more disastrously than I, for he was already dead and gone, and none knew where nor how. He alone, in the days he had lived, knew the secret of the hiding place for which I was bound. He had bought the ranch for beauty and paid a round price for it, much to the disgust of the local farmers. 
He used to tell with great glee how they were wont to shake their heads mournfully at the price, to accomplish ponderously a bit of mental arithmetic, and then to say, but you can't make six per cent on it. But he was dead now, nor did the ranch descend to his children. Of all men, it was now the property of Mr. Wixon, who owned the whole eastern and northern slopes of Sonoma Mountain, running from the Spreckles estate to the divide of Bennett Valley. Out of it he had made a magnificent deer park, where, over thousands of acres of sweet slopes and glades and canyons, the deer ran almost in primitive wildness. The people who had owned the soil had been driven away. A state home for the feeble-minded had also been demolished to make room for the deer. To cap it all, Wixon's hunting lodge was a quarter of a mile from my hiding place. This, instead of being a danger, was an added security. We were sheltered under the very aegis of one of the minor oligarchs. Suspicion by the nature of the situation was turned aside. The last place in the world the spies of the Iron Heel would dream of looking for me, and for Ernest when he joined me, was Wixon's deer park. We tied our horses among the redwoods at the pool. From a cache behind a hollow rotting log, my companion brought out a variety of things, a fifty-pound sack of flour, tinned foods of all sorts, cooking utensils, blankets, a canvas tarpaulin, books and writing material, a great bundle of letters, a five-gallon can of kerosene, an oil stove, and, last and most important, a large coil of stout rope. So large was the supply of things that a number of trips would be necessary to carry them to the refuge. But the refuge was very near. Taking the rope and leading the way, I passed through a glade of tangled vines and bushes that ran between two wooded knolls. The glade ended abruptly at the steep bank of a stream. It was a little stream, rising from springs, and the hottest summer never dried it up. On every hand were tall wooded knolls, a group of them, with all the seeming of having been flung there from some careless titan's hand. There was no bedrock in them. There rose from their bases hundreds of feet, and they were composed of red volcanic earth, the famous wine soil of Sonoma. Through these, the tiny stream had cut its deep and precipitous channel. It was quite a scramble down to the stream bed, and, once on the bed, we went downstream, perhaps for a hundred feet, and then we came to the great hole. There was no warning of the existence of the hole, nor was it a hole in the common sense of the word. One crawled through tight-locked briars and branches, and found oneself on the very edge, peering out and down through a green screen. A couple of hundred feet in length and width, it was half of that in depth. Possibly because of some fault that had occurred when the knolls were flung together, and certainly helped by freakish erosion, the hole had been scooped out in the course of centuries by the wash of water. Nowhere did the raw earth appear. All was garmented by vegetation, from tiny maidenhair and gold-back ferns to mighty redwood and Douglas spruces. These great trees even sprang out from the walls of the hole. Some leaned over at angles as great as forty-five degrees, though the majority towered straight up from the soft and almost perpendicular earth walls. It was a perfect hiding place. No one ever came there, not even the village boys of Glen Ellen. Had this hole existed in the bed of a canyon a mile long, or several miles long, it would have been well known. But this was no canyon. From beginning to end, the length of the stream was no more than five hundred yards. Three hundred yards above the hole, the stream took its rise in a spring at the foot of a flat meadow. A hundred yards below the hole, the stream ran out into open country, joining the main stream and flowing across rolling and grass-covered land. My companion took a turn of the rope around a tree, and with me fast on the other end lowered away. In no time I was on the bottom, and in but a short while he had carried all the articles from the cache and lowered them down to me. He hauled the rope up and hid it, and before he went away called down to me a cheerful parting. Before I go on, I want to say a word for this comrade, John Carlson, a humble figure of the Revolution, one of the countless faithful ones in the ranks. He worked for Wixon, in the stables near the hunting lodge. 
In fact, it was on Wixon's horses that we had ridden over Sonoma Mountain. For nearly twenty years now, John Carlson has been custodian of the refuge. No thought of disloyalty, I am sure, has ever entered his mind during all that time. To betray his trust would have been in his mind a thing undreamed. He was phlegmatic, stolid, to such a degree that one could not but wonder how the revolution had any meaning to him at all. And yet love of freedom glowed somberly and steadily in his dim soul. In ways it was indeed good that he was not flighty and imaginative. He never lost his head. He could obey orders, and he was neither curious nor garrulous. Once I asked how it was that he was a revolutionist. When I was a young man, I was a soldier, was his answer. It was in Germany. There, all young men must be in the army. So I was in the army. There was another soldier there, a young man, too. His father was what you call an agitator, and his father was in jail for Lee's majesty, what you call speaking the truth about the emperor. And the young man, the son, talked with me much about people, and work, and the robbery of the people by the capitalists. He made me see things in new ways and I became a socialist. His talk was very true and good, and I have never forgotten. When I came to the United States, I hunted up the socialists. I became a member of a section. That was in the day of the SLP. Then later, when the split came, I joined the local of the SP. I was working in a livery stable in San Francisco then. That was before the earthquake. I have paid my dues for 22 years. I am yet a member, and I yet pay my dues, though it is very secret now. I will always pay my dues, and when the cooperative commonwealth comes, I will be glad. Left to myself, I proceeded to cook breakfast on the oil stove and to prepare my home. Often in the early morning or in the evening after dark, Carlson would steal down to the refuge and work for a couple of hours. At first my home was the tarpaulin, later a small tent was put up, and still later, when we became assured of the perfect security of the place, a small house was erected. This house was completely hidden from any chance eye that might peer down from the edge of the hole. The lush vegetation of that sheltered spot make a natural shield. Also, the house was built against the perpendicular wall, and in the wall itself, shored by strong timbers, well-drained and ventilated, we excavated two small rooms. Oh, believe me, we had many comforts. When Biedenbach, the German terrorist, hid with us some time later, he installed a smoke-consuming device that enabled us to sit by crackling wood fires on winter nights. And here I must say a word for that gentle-souled terrorist, than whom there is no comrade in the revolution more fearfully misunderstood. Comrade Biedenbach did not betray the cause, nor was he executed by the comrades as is commonly supposed. This canal was circulated by the creatures of the oligarchy. Comrade Biedenbach was absent-minded, forgetful. He was shot by one of our lookouts at the cave refuge at Carmel, through failure on his part to remember the secret signals. It was all a sad mistake and that he betrayed his fighting group is an absolute lie. No truer, more loyal man ever labored for the cause. Note. Search as we may through all the material of those times that has come down to us, we can find no clue to the Biedenbach here referred to. No mention is made of him anywhere save in the Everhard manuscript. For nineteen years now, the refuge that I selected had been almost continuously occupied, and in all that time, with one exception, it has never been discovered by an outsider and yet it was only a quarter of a mile from Wixon's hunting lodge and a short mile from the village of Glen Ellen. I was able, always, to hear the morning and evening trains arrive and depart, and I used to set my watch by the whistle at the brickyards. Note. If the curious traveller will turn south from Glen Ellen, he will find himself on a boulevard that is identical with the old country road seven centuries ago. A quarter of a mile from Glen Ellen, after the second bridge has passed, to the right will be noticed a barranca that runs like a scar across the rolling land toward a group of wooded knolls. 
The barranca is the site of the ancient right of way that in the time of private property and land ran across the holding of one Chauvet, a French pioneer of California, who came from his native country in the fabled days of gold. The wooded knolls are the same knolls referred to by Avis Everhard. The great earthquake of 2368 AD broke off the side of one of these knolls and toppled it into the hole where the Everhards made their refuge. Since the finding of the manuscript, excavations have been made, and the house, the two cave rooms, and all the accumulated rubbish of long occupancy have been brought to light. Many valuable relics have been found, among which, curious to relate, is the smoke-consuming device of Biedenbach's mentioned in the narrative. Students interested in such matters should read the brochure of Arnold Bentham, soon to be published. A mile northwest from the wooded knolls brings one to the site of Wake Robin Lodge at the junction of Wild Water and Sonoma Creeks. It may be noticed in passing that Wild Water was originally called Graham Creek and was so named on the early local maps. But the later name sticks. It was at Wake Robin Lodge that Avis Everhard later lived for short periods, when, disguised as an agent provocateur of the Iron Heel, she was enabled to play with impunity her part among men and events. The official permission to occupy Wake Robin Lodge is still on the records, signed by no less a man than Wixon, the minor oligarch of the manuscript. End of chapter 18 Recording by Matt Saw, Montreal, mattsaw.org Recording by Matt Saw Transformation You must make yourself over again, Ernest wrote to me. You must cease to be. You must become another woman, and not merely in the clothes you wear, but inside your skin, under the clothes. You must make yourself over again so that even I would not know you. Your voice, your gestures, your mannerisms, your carriage, your walk, everything. This command I obeyed. Every day I practiced for hours in burying forever the old Avis Everhard beneath the skin of another woman who I may call my other self. It was only by long practice that such results could be obtained. In the mere detail of voice intonation, I practiced almost perpetually till the voice of my new self became fixed, automatic. It was this automatic assumption of a role that was considered imperative. One must become so adept as to deceive oneself. It was like learning a new language, say the French. At first, speech in French is self-conscious, a matter of the will. The student thinks in English and then transmutes into French, or reads in French but transmutes into English before he can understand. Then, later, becoming firmly grounded, automatic, the student reads, writes, and thinks in French without any recourse to English at all. And so, with our disguises, it was necessary for us to practice until our assumed roles became real until to be our original selves would require a watchful and strong exercise of will. Of course, at first, much was mere blundering experiment. We were creating a new art, and we had much to discover. But the work was going on everywhere. Masters in the art were developing, and a fund of tricks and expedients was being accumulated. This fund became a sort of textbook that was passed on, a part of the curriculum, as it were, of the school of revolution. Note. Disguise did become a veritable art during that period. The revolutionists maintained schools of acting in all their refuges. They scorned accessories such as wigs and beards, false eyebrows, and such aids of the theatrical actors. The game of revolution was a game of life and death, and mere accessories were traps. Disguise had to be fundamental, intrinsic, part and parcel of one's being, second nature. The Red Virgin is reported to have been one of the most adept in the art, to which must be ascribed her long and successful career. It was at this time that my father disappeared. 
His letters, which had come to me regularly, ceased. He no longer appeared at our Pell Street quarters. Our comrades sought him everywhere. Through our secret service, we ransacked every prison in the land. But he was lost as completely as if the earth had swallowed him up, and to this day no clue to his end has been discovered. Note. Disappearance was one of the horrors of the time. As a motif in song and story, it constantly crops up. It was an inevitable concomitant of the subterranean warfare that raged through those three centuries. This phenomenon was almost as common in the oligarch class and the labor caste as it was in the ranks of the revolutionists. Without warning, without trace, men and women, and even children, disappeared and were seen no more, their end shrouded in mystery. Six lonely months I spent in the refuge, but they were not idle months. Our organization went on apace, and there were mountains of work always waiting to be done. Ernest and his fellow leaders, from their prisons, decided what should be done, and it remained for us on the outside to do it. There was the organization of the mouth-to-mouth propaganda, the organization with all its ramifications of our spy system, the establishment of our secret printing presses, and the establishment of our underground railways, which meant the knitting together of all our myriads of places of refuge, and the formation of new refuges where links were missing in the chains we ran over all the land. So I say, the work was never done. At the end of six months, my loneliness was broken by the arrival of two comrades. They were young girls, brave souls and passionate lovers of liberty. Laura Peterson, who disappeared in 1922, and Kate Beers, who later married Du Bois, and who is still with us with eyes lifted to tomorrow's sun that heralds in the new age. Note. Du Bois, the present librarian of Ardis, is a lineal descendant of this revolutionary pair. The two girls arrived in a flurry of excitement, danger, and sudden death. In the crew of the fishing boat that conveyed them across San Pablo Bay was a spy, a creature of the Iron Heel. He had successfully masqueraded as a revolutionist and penetrated deep into the secrets of our organization. Without doubt, he was on my trail, for we had long since learned that my disappearance had been cause of deep concern to the secret service of the oligarchy. Luckily, as the outcome proved, he had not divulged his discoveries to anyone. He had evidently delayed reporting, preferring to wait until he had brought things to a successful conclusion by discovering my hiding place and capturing me. His information died with him. Under some pretext, after the girls had landed at Petaluma Creek and taken to the horses, he managed to get away from the boat. Partway up Sonoma Mountain, John Carlson let the girls go on, leading his horse, while he went back on foot. His suspicions had been aroused. He captured the spy, and as to what then happened, Carlson gave us a fair idea. I fixed him, was Carlson's unimaginative way of describing the affair. I fixed him, he repeated while a somber light burnt in his eyes, and his huge, toil-distorted hands opened and closed eloquently. He made no noise. I hid him, and tonight I will go back and bury him deep. During that period, I used to marvel at my own metamorphosis. At times it seemed impossible, either that I had ever lived a placid, peaceful life in a college town, or that I had become a revolutionist, inured to scenes of violence and death. One or the other could not be. One was real, the other was a dream. But which was which? Was this present life of a revolutionist hiding in a hole a nightmare? Or was I a revolutionist who had somewhere, somehow, dreamed that in some former existence I have lived in Berkeley and never known a life more violent than teas and dances, debating societies and lectures rooms? But then I suppose this was a common experience of all of us who had rallied under the red banner of the Brotherhood of Man. I often remembered figures from that other life. And curiously enough, they appeared and disappeared, now and again, in my new life. There was Bishop Morehouse. In vain we searched for him after our organization had developed. 
He had been transferred from asylum to asylum. We traced him from the state hospital for the insane at Napa to the one in Stockton, and from there to the one in the Santa Clara Valley called Anus. And there the trail ceased. There was no record of his death. In some way he must have escaped. Little did I dream of the awful manner in which I was to see him once again, the fleeting glimpse of him in the whirlwind carnage of the Chicago Commune. Jackson, who had lost his arm in the Sierra Mills, and who had been the cause of my own conversion into a revolutionist, I never saw again, but we all knew what he did before he died. He never joined the revolutionists. Embittered by his fate, brooding over his wrongs, he became an anarchist. Not a philosophic anarchist, but a mere animal, mad with hate and lust for revenge. And while he revenged himself, evading the guards, in the night time while all were asleep, he blew the Pertonwaithe Palace into atoms. Not a soul escaped, not even the guards. And in prison, while awaiting trial, he suffocated himself under his blankets. Dr. Hammerfield and Dr. Ballingford achieved quite different fates from that of Jackson. They have been faithful to their salt, and they have been correspondingly rewarded with ecclesiastical palaces wherein they dwell at peace with the world. Both are apologists for the oligarchy. Both have grown very fat. Dr. Hammerfield, as Ernest once said, has succeeded in modifying his metaphysics so as to give God's sanction to the Iron Heel, and also to include much worship of beauty and to reduce to an invisible wreath the gaseous vertebrate described by Haeckel. The difference between Dr. Hammerfield and Dr. Ballingford being that the latter has made the god of the oligarchs a little more gaseous and a little less vertebrate. Peter Donnelly, the scab foreman at the Sierra Mills, whom I encountered while investigating the case of Jackson, was a surprise to all of us. In 1918, I was present at a meeting of the Frisco Reds. Of all our fighting groups, this one was the most formidable, ferocious, and merciless. It was really not a part of our organization. Its members were fanatics, madmen. We dared not encourage such a spirit. On the other hand, though they did not belong to us, we remained on friendly terms with them. It was a matter of vital importance that brought me there that night. I, alone in the midst of a score of men, was the only person unmasked. After the business that brought me there was transacted, I was led away by one of them. In a dark passage, this guide struck a match, and holding it close to his face, slipped back his mask. For a moment I gazed upon the passion-wrought features of Peter Donnelly. Then the match went out. I just wanted you to know it was me, he said in the darkness. Do you remember Dallas, the superintendent? I nodded at recollection of the vulpine-faced superintendent of the Sierra Mills. Well, I got him first, Donnelly said with pride. It was after that I joined the Reds. But how comes it that you are here? I queried. Your wife and children? Dead, he answered. That's why. No, he went on hastily. Tis not revenge for them. They died easily in their beds. Sickness, you see, one time and another. They tied my arms while they lived. And now that they're gone, tis revenge for my blasted manhood I'm after. I was once Peter Donnelly, the scab foreman. But tonight, I'm number 27 of the Frisco Reds. Come on now, and I'll get you out of this. More I heard of him afterward. In his own way, he had told the truth when he said all were dead. But one lived. Timothy and him his father considered dead, because he had taken service with the Iron Heel and the mercenaries. Note. In addition to the labor castes, there arose another caste, the military. A standing army of professional soldiers was created, officered by members of the oligarchy and known as the mercenaries. This institution took the place of the militia, which had proved impracticable under the new regime. 
Outside the regular secret service of the Iron Heel, there was further established a secret service of the mercenaries, this latter forming a connecting link between the police and the military. A member of the Frisco Reds pledged himself to twelve annual executions. The penalty for failure was death. A member who failed to complete his number committed suicide. These executions were not haphazard. This group of madmen met frequently and passed wholesale judgments upon offending members and servitors of the oligarchy. The executions were afterward apportioned by lot. In fact, the business that brought me there the night of my visit was such a trial. One of our own comrades, who for years had successfully maintained himself in a clerical position in the local bureau of the Secret Service of the Iron Heel, had fallen under the ban of the Frisco Reds and was being tried. Of course he was not present, and of course his judges did not know that he was one of our men. My mission had been to testify to his identity and loyalty. It may be wondered how we came to know of the affair at all. The explanation is simple. One of our secret agents was a member of the Frisco Reds. It was necessary for us to keep an eye on friend as well as foe, and this group of madmen was not too unimportant to escape our surveillance. But to return to Peter Donnelly and his son. All went well with Donnelly until in the following year he found among the sheaf of executions that fell to him the name of Timothy Donnelly. Then it was that that clannishness, which was his to so extraordinary a degree, asserted itself. To save his son, he betrayed his comrades. In this he was partially blocked, but a dozen of the Frisco Reds were executed, and the group was well-nigh destroyed. In retaliation, the survivors meted out to Donnelly the death he had earned by his treason. Nor did Timothy Donnelly long survive. The Frisco Reds pledged themselves to his execution. Every effort was made by the oligarchy to save him. He was transferred from one part of the country to another. Three of the Reds lost their lives in vain efforts to get him. The group was composed only of men. In the end, they fell back on a woman, one of our comrades, and none other than Anne Royalston. Our inner circle forbade her, but she had ever a will of her own and disdained discipline. Furthermore, she was a genius and lovable, and we could never discipline her anyway. She is in a class by herself and not amenable to the ordinary standards of the revolutionists. Despite our refusal to grant permission to do the deed, she went on with it. Now Anna Royalston was a fascinating woman. All she had to do was to beckon a man to her. She broke the hearts of scores of our young comrades and scores of others she captured, and by their heartstrings led into our organization. Yet she steadfastly refused to marry. She dearly loved children, but she held that a child of her own would claim her from the cause, and that it was the cause to which her life was devoted. It was an easy task for Anna Royalston to win Timothy Donnelly. Her conscience did not trouble her, for at that very time occurred the Nashville Massacre, when the mercenaries, Donnelly in command, literally murdered 800 weavers of that city. But she did not kill Donnelly. She turned him over, a prisoner, to the Frisco Reds. This happened only last year, and now she had been renamed. The revolutionists everywhere are calling her the Red Virgin. Note. It was not until the second revolt was crushed that the Frisco Reds flourished again, and for two generations the group flourished. Then an agent of the Iron Heel managed to become a member, penetrated all its secrets, and brought about its total annihilation. This occurred in 2002 AD. The members were executed one at a time, at intervals of three weeks, and their bodies exposed in the labor ghetto of San Francisco. Colonel Ingram and Colonel Van Gilbert are two more familiar figures that I was later to encounter. Colonel Ingram rose high in the oligarchy and became minister to Germany. He was cordially detested by the proletariat of both countries. It was in Berlin that I met him, where, as an accredited international spy of the Iron Heel, I was received by him and afforded much assistance. 
Incidentally, I may state that in my dual role, I managed a few important things for the revolution. Colonel Van Gilbert became known as Snarling Van Gilbert. His important part was played in drafting the new code after the Chicago Commune. But before that, as trial judge, he had earned sentence of death by his fiendish malignancy. I was one of those that tried him and passed sentence upon him. Anne Royalston carried out the execution. Still another figure arose out of the old life. Jackson's lawyer. Least of all would I have expected again to meet this man, Joseph Hurd. It was a strange meeting. Late at night, two years after the Chicago Commune, Ernest and I arrived together at the Benton Harbor Refuge. This was in Michigan, across the lake from Chicago. We arrived just at the conclusion of the trial of a spy. Sentence of death had been passed, and he was being led away. Such was the scene as we came upon it. The next moment the wretched man had wrenched free from his captors and flung himself at my feet, his arms clutching me about the knees in a vice-like grip as he prayed in a frenzy of mercy. As he turned his agonized face up to me, I recognized him as Joseph Heard. Of all the terrible things I have witnessed, never have I been so unnerved as by this frantic creature's pleading for life. He was mad for life. It was pitiable. He refused to let go of me, despite the hands of a dozen comrades. And when at last he was dragged shrieking away, I sank down fainting upon the floor. It is far easier to see brave men die than to hear a coward beg for life. Note. The Benton Harbor Refuge was a catacomb, the entrance of which was cunningly contrived by way of a well. It has been maintained in a fair state of preservation, and the curious visitor may today tread its labyrinths to the assembly hall, where, without doubt, occurred the scene described by Avis Everhard. Farther on are the cells where the prisoners were confined, and the death chamber where the executions took place. Beyond is the cemetery, long, winding galleries hewn out of the solid rock, with recesses on either hand, wherein, tier above tier, lie the revolutionists, just as they were laid away by their comrades long years gone. End of chapter 19 Recording by Matt Saw, Montreal, mattsaw.org